morning is Luke chapter 1. I want to encourage you to turn to 67 through 80 as we read together God's Word. Would you stand and we will read this together in respect for God's Holy Word. Luke 1, verses 67 to 80, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that, we swore, that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. To Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these opportunities that we have on a weekly basis to come together as a body of Christ, as a family, as a people of God to worship our God. And so we praise you for that. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would enlighten it for us this morning. Help us to learn and be changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, during this Advent season, we are looking into some often overlooked aspects of the Christmas story. Last week, we looked at Joseph and his decision not to put Mary to shame by publicly divorcing her. This week, we examine Zechariah's prophecy. And a lot of people skip over this last half of Luke chapter 1, partly because the chapter is so long. 80 verses, and, and partly because what seems like the exciting part is the, the part where the angel comes, Gabriel comes and, and visits Zechariah. I know some of you have Zechariah in your translations. I'll just use Zechariah today. But the angel Gabriel visits him. The exciting part is also the loss of speech until the child is born. And I think people just usually skip through the last 14 verses because there are quite a few unfamiliar phrases and references, things like horn of salvation in verse 69, or the oath sworn to Abraham, verse 73, or the phrase sunrise shall visit us from on high. Some of you have day spring on high, found in verse 78. Well, before we look at those phrases and other aspects of this section, I want you to realize that Zechariah's words were the first prophetic words that had been heard in 400 years. 400 years, it's a long time. For example, 400 years, one of the most important events that you've probably never heard of, King Ferdinand of Hungary, Bohemia and Croatia, all three of those areas, the most powerful monarch in Europe, was made the Holy Roman Emperor. It made him 
not only the king of those three territories, but all of Europe, and he turned the Thirty Years' War, which until then had been a series of small conflicts, into a very large world-scale military conflict that was really pitting Catholicism against Protestantism. And the Thirty Years' War ravaged Europe. It left some eight million people dead. In parts of continental Europe, half the population was killed or starved to death as troops destroyed cr crops and stole food supplies. And if you've even heard of the Thirty Years' War of the early 1600s, no doubt that would seem like an eternity ago, wouldn't it? 400 years ago, the Puritans ended up fleeing to the United States, which was not yet a country. Galileo published his findings that the planets orbit the sun. The city of Manhattan, New York, was purchased by the Dutch for $24. Most of us can hardly remember back 40 years, if we were even alive at that time, but 400 years before Zechariah, the last of the prophets, Malachi had spoken his last words. Only a small percentage of the people of Israel had returned back from the exile in Babylon, they had rebuilt the temple, which was a much smaller version than Solomon's magnificent temple. There was no king in the land in Malachi's time, even though people knew who the descendant of David was. It was Zerubbabel, and he merely served as the governor of Judah rather than a king because the country was under the control of Persia. But then if you fast forward 400 years from Malachi's time, you have an Israel that Malachi would, would never have recognized. The Roman emperor and empire is now in control. There is still a temple, but the latest version has been one that has gone through a half dozen revisions. Now there's also Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and synagogues and a whole new religious system. The scriptures have been eclipsed by the Talmud, which is a book of the rabbis. It was part law and part stories. And the Talmud's accompanied by the Mishnah and the Targum and a host of other writings that distracted the people from the actual word of God. And through that entire 400 years, God had been silent. There had been no prophetic word, no revelation, no direction, nothing. But the providence of God, of course, continued if you're familiar during that time period, you know about the stories of the Maccabees and others. But the silence had to have been deafening. Given that the nation had received word from God since the time of Adam, except for a, a long, one other long period of silence. Some in Jesus' time interpreted the lack of God's word as a lack of his concern for his people. But they were not the first to feel that way. You'll remember the Israelites in the time of Moses in Exodus 3.7. We hear God tell Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And what was their cry? It was the cry of oppression, right? It was a cry of affliction, the cry of a people who felt abandoned by their God because they suffered under the cruelty of the Egyptians. And you'll maybe know that they had been in Egypt for how long? 400 years. And a moment ago, I mentioned that there had been one other long period of silence from God, and this is the one. 
400 years in Egypt. And it's not a coincidence. God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So not a surprise to God, a plan of God. It had to have come across as a strange revelation, right? Abraham might have said, why tell me that? My great-great-grandchildren, while never met, are going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs for 400 years. Why is that significant? Well, first it's significant because God decided to tell Abraham that fact. Decades before it happened, so it's important to God, right? On his providential timetable. Second, it's significant because God told Abraham that at the end of those 400 years, God would deliver his people Deliver them by whom? By Moses. And according to Deuteronomy 18, at the end of his life, Moses told the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you will listen. Now you might think that Moses could have been referring to any of the other prophets after him during those subsequent centuries. Prophets like Jeremiah or Daniel or or Ezekiel, but it was the phrase like me that made a difference. Moses was both a prophet and a redeemer. He was a leader of the people. And because Moses had said that this great prophet would be similar to him, the Israelites in Jesus' time were still looking for the one who would come and deliver them. That person in the Jewish mind had come to be known as the great prophet. That was his title one who, like Moses, would lead them out of their oppression. And that's why we read in the Gospels that the leaders came from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Was he the prophet that Moses had foretold? No. Jesus was that great prophet who was like Moses. But it isn't just because Jesus spoke the word of God and redeemed the people like Moses had done. In fact, Think about all the ways that God set up things so that Jesus would be like Moses. Both were born during a time that the king executed Hebrew babies. Both spent time in Egypt as a child. Both performed miracles to prove their authority and their mission. Both were approved by the audible voice of God. Both were of royal families, but gave up their wealth and prerogative to live a humble life of service and poverty. Both were initially rejected by the people they were sent to redeem. Both were even criticized by their own families. Both miraculously provided the people bread from heaven to eat. Both fasted for 40 days. You could go on. There are so many parallels between Moses and Jesus. But one of the neatest parallels is this. Both were born after 400 years of silence. At a time when the people were crying out from their oppression. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And you can see Paul's comment, when the fullness of time had come, God was not lacking concern. His silence was not suggesting inactivity, as 
timetable had been unfolding precisely as he had foretold. And that was just as true with Moses in the Exodus. God had told Abraham it would be 400 years. Interestingly, God told Abraham that he would send a redeemer after the sins of the Amorites had reached their fullness. Just as God told Abraham how long it would be before sending Moses, God similarly told his prophets Daniel and Isaiah and others how long it would be before he sent his Messiah. I think it's remarkable, but it's just like God to have waited the same amount of time, 400 years, to have superintended so many parallels between Jesus and Moses. And so with all of that context, I want you to look again at our morning's passage. At a few things here. Verse 68, God has visited and redeemed his people. That's language that would have stirred up memories of the Exodus. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again, images of Exodus. To remember the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, just like Moses was sent as a remembrance of that same oath to Abraham. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And that that phrase, serve him without fear, may not mean anything particularly significant to you. But if you had lived in Jesus' time and were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, you would have immediately connected that phrase with the Exodus. Because over and over again during that time period, God states that his purpose in redeeming the Israelites from Egypt is what? so that they may serve me, so that they may worship me. In fact, even more significantly, the Israelites in Jesus' time read their Old Testament, not in Hebrew, but in Greek, namely from what was called the Septuagint, that phrase that occurs in Exodus, that they may serve me, is exactly the same phrase that Zechariah says. So what is Zechariah saying? He is saying that Jesus is the great prophet, but even more than that, that Jesus is the true and better Moses. What makes him better? Well, as Paul writes in Galatians, our enemies are not flesh and bone. Our enemies are sin and death. And Jesus didn't just deliver us to take us to the promised land of Canaan, where life will be better but where we will one day still die, he delivered us to take us to the promised land, capital P, capital L of heaven, where life will be eternal and we will never die, where we are adopted as the sons and daughters of God. And those hearing Zechariah had been waiting a long time for good news. 400 years, Israel had gone from being under the Babylonians to being under the Persians to being under the Greeks, now to being under the Romans. The news of a redeemer like Moses was good news indeed to a people who were captive and needed redemption. In verse 76, Zechariah briefly addresses his son John. He's been talking about the Messiah, but here he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And this, again, this is a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah 40. That was part of our reading earlier. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And when Zechariah says of John that he will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation for the forgiveness of sins, that is what Isaiah had promised, that there would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And that reference to the wilderness is again, what? A connection to the Exodus, where God made straight the way in the wilderness for the Israelites. And Isaiah's starting words of comfort, my people, reminds us of how God told Moses, according to Exodus 19, to comfort the Israelites, to remind them that he had borne them up like a mother eagle, carrying them on his wings. And so Moses was to speak to God's people with tender hope, So is Isaiah. Comfort. It's a nice word. When you think of comfort, where is it that you think of? Some vacation spot, some place in your home? Is it some environmental place like a spot by a lake or in the woods, in the mountains? Is there a song, a pet, clothing item, a meal? A hobby, something else in which you find comfort. Well, what's the comfort that Isaiah predicted? It's much better, deeper, and richer than all the earthly things, even earthly relationships that comfort us. Isaiah says two things. The first is that the war is ended. The war is ended. There's still some people alive today who can tell the rest of us what it was like as a child to find out that World War II had ended. That day must have been amazing to hear the news, especially for people who had maybe a parent overseas or had been subject to rations or people living in Europe who wondered about nighttime air raids and rushed to bomb shelters at any time of day when they heard the horns blaring. What war is Isaiah referencing? In Isaiah 40, it's the war between a holy God and his sinful creation. And that leads us to the second thing that Isaiah says, comfort my people about, and that is God's God's people's sins will be forgiven. The end of war between man and God and the forgiveness of sins, that is true comfort. And if you think about the history of Israel and go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, in disobeying God, they were exiled from his presence and from the garden, and much took place between Adam and Moses. But suffice it to say that God was long-suffering and kind despite the sin of his creation. And by the time that Moses and the people were in exile in Egypt, Moses came with the good news that God was restoring them to the land of Canaan, which would be like a new kind of Eden. In fact, as Moses describes the land, he says how so many aspects of the curse that are announced in Genesis 3, frustration of the land and in childbirth and so on, 
saying how so many of those aspects would be reversed in Canaan if his people were faithful, but his people were not faithful. And after living in Canaan for many centuries, or at least a few centuries, almost immediately they began to fall away from God, and still the Lord graciously sent prophet after prophet to warn them of judgment. He finally sends the northern kingdom into exile under Assyria, keeps warning the southern kingdom of Judah that the same will happen to her if she doesn't repent, but she won't listen, and eventually he exiles her to Babylon. And Isaiah comes in the middle of all of that and tells of the good news that will one day come. The sins of God's people will be pardoned. Generations of rebellion will be forgiven. God will bring forgiveness of sins. That is the comfort that Isaiah brings. Those are the tender words of hope. And those who heard Zechariah quoting Isaiah, referencing the Exodus, see the context now? Had to have been excited. But they didn't grasp the full import of what he said. God was not just going to pardon the generational sin of rebellion. He wasn't just going to end the exile of the people out from under Rome. He was going to pardon all the sins of his people forever. The true comfort, the true tender mercy of God, the sending of the sunshine or day spring from on high, Jesus, is that sin's power is conquered. Its penalty is removed and its price is paid. That's why Westminster Catechism, for example, says this question, what's your only comfort in life and in death? What's the answer? That you are not your own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for all your sins with his precious blood and has set you free from the power of the devil. The good news of Christmas is for those who are tired of seeing bad news everywhere, especially in themselves. The Israelites in Zechariah's day were confused. Yes, the king is coming, but for what reason? To rescue us from Rome. That's, that's not what the redemption is that they needed. They had been rescued from Egypt, from the Philistines, from the Babylonians, from the Persians, from Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucid Empire, from all sorts of people. Every time there was a new cycle, the people would sin again. God would judge often by exiling themselves, and then he would rescue them. They didn't need rescuing from Rome, their latest masters. We don't need rescuing from our cultural masters, sinful leaders, sinful culture transformers. We don't need rescue from them. We need deliverance from sin and death. And only the humble can hear and receive that good news. And I don't want you to hear. When I say the humble, I don't want you to say, okay, I've, 
I've got to clean up my life and make sure that I feel bad and then, then I'll be ready. God will really love me. That's not what I mean by being humble. What I mean is that when you hear about God rescuing his people from captivity under sin, do you hear it as a long-awaited news of great joy? And, and friends, again, I'm not trying to say you need to be feeling really miserable. Merry Christmas. That's not what I'm saying. But Christmas is only merry if you need good news. The world needs to hear that Christmas is good news for sinners. And if you're the only one who is truly broken over sin, then you are one of the ones who are afflicted and need some comfort this morning. The comfort of Zechariah, which is in turn the comfort of Isaiah, is that God has saved you from your sins. There could be no better news. A baby was born in Bethlehem who was the promised Messiah and Redeemer, the long-awaited great prophet, the one better than Moses, who would both speak the words of God and deliver his people, not just from their earthly masters, but from the ones that held them in bondage forever. Does that sound good? Are you in the midst of a season of waiting? Maybe it's been a, a season of some incredibly frustrating months. Maybe even years. You feel as though God has forgotten you and you have begun to doubt. But don't lose hope. God does work and is at work in your waiting. He is at work in the moments of silence. God wants to point you to Jesus. Don't neglect what the Spirit may be doing in your life, maybe even this morning. The God who told Abraham what was to come 400 years later or told Isaiah about the coming Christ also knows about your future, and he has told you about what that future entails. He has told you what he is preparing for you. He has told you what to expect. And it's comforting. So what will you do this morning? How did Zechariah and Isaiah expect that the people would respond? Well, we've already seen that they would be comforted, but that's not really an action. But if we look at our passage today, it says that we might serve him. God's goal for his people in every generation is that having been rescued from their sin, having been comforted, that they will then serve him, worship him, and comfort others with the comfort with which they have been comforted. And they will do it without fear in holiness and justice. And when you go back to the story of the Exodus, God did not tell Moses, get my people out of Egypt, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go in order that they can finally do whatever their hearts desire. That's not what he said. Instead, he redeems them from the bondage of Egypt. He frees them so that they will actually be able to devote their lives to a better master. One whose yoke is far less burdensome. So that they will be a testimony to the other nations about God's power and glory. And the same thing is true for you if you have been redeemed by the true and better Redeemer, Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
So he's appealing to them by what has already taken place. God has been merciful to them. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to now present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual worship. It's your right response to the comfort that God gives. I hope that is a good news today. Through Jesus, God made it possible for you and me to become holy and acceptable And there is a sense in which the reason why God sent a better redeemer than Moses was not so much to fix your problem as to fix, we'll say, his problem. I'll I'll just say it like that. What would possibly be God's problem, if I might put it that way, it is how would he in his absolute perfection and holiness justly allow sinners into his presence? Only through Jesus. Jesus who is the expression of God's mercy and comfort, the fulfillment of all of his promises. So I'll end where we began by quoting Zechariah, and perhaps the words will be, I hope, more meaningful this time and not an overlooked aspect of the Christmas story. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your gracious word. I thank you for the joy that it brings us and how it makes the celebration of Christ's birth indeed so merry, so joy-producing, so comforting. And Lord God, in in these aspects of Christ's birth that we often don't look at, I pray that we would have, in spending some time in Zechariah's words, would remember how you had laid out a plan, not only for 400 years, but since the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell and you told them, that one, the seed of the woman, would come and crush the serpent's head. And Father, you told your people time and again through the generations to expect a greater deliverance. So I thank you, Lord, that that finally came in Jesus and in the way that only could be possible, and that is that one should die for us that we might be able to enter the presence of a holy God. Thank you for that, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.